Welcome to California Now, a new podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Saturius Johnson. Join me and we'll get to know some of the people, places, and experiences that make California one of the world's great travel destinations. Today, we'll meet Jeff Gordonier, the food and drinks editor for Esquire magazine. Jeff recently took on a really tough assignment. His editor sent him to San Francisco and told him to tackle the tasting menus at five acclaimed and ultra-expensive restaurants. I don't know which is my favorite. I, I think you should just go to all of them, and then, <laughs> and then you'll be broke. <laughs> and if you've ever wondered about the difference between a five-star hotel and a four-star property, you'll want to hear from our next guest. Amanda Frazier oversees the ratings for the influential Forbes Travel Guide. Her reviewers are the secret agents of travel writing. They're committed to accurate reviews, and they do their work undercover. When we say incognito, we really mean we do not reveal the identity of the inspector at any point during the stay, either before they arrive, during the stay, uh, or we don't identify ourselves on departure either. Plus, a visit to the Channel Islands. It's all coming up on California Now. My next guest has one of the coolest jobs in the world. Jeff Gordonier is the food and drinks editor for Esquire magazine. And from what I gather, that means he wanders the globe and pretty much eats everything he sees. Jeff Travels recently brought him through uh, San Francisco, where he sampled a series of tasting menus at some exclusive Bay Area restaurants. And I want to find out how that went. Welcome to the California Now podcast, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So did I get the job description right? You're basically a professional glutton, right? <laughs> yeah, my wife would verify that. I need to I need to work on the exercise part of it to counter it. But yeah, I do basically travel around and eat. I, a lot of it goes into a couple packages we do every year at Esquire. One is our best new restaurants package, and one is our best bars package, which comes out in uh, about six weeks. So throughout the year, I have to visit a lot of restaurants and bars to see what they're up to. Um, and then, of course, there's other ancillary. I do a column, and I do profiles of chefs. So well, the visits are tied to all those different enterprises. Mm. Well, you know, you wrote a feature for the spring 2018 edition of Esquire's Big Black Book. Uh, the cover's actually blue, by the way, not black, uh, about some very fancy San Francisco restaurants. What exactly was your assignment? Yeah, this was one of those things where an editor of mine mentioned, um, you know, I, w- I was reading that San Francisco now has more three Michelin star restaurants than anywhere else in the country. Hmm. And I was like, yeah, three is the highest rating you can get from the Michelin uh, uh, operation. So I was like, that's true. And he said, well, why don't you go out there Monday (laughs) (laughs) and stay through the week and just just kind of eat it as many as you can and and write your impressions, speak to the chefs. Let's let's talk about what's happening and why and – so get on a plane. <laughs> oh, wow. That sounds... Um, so, okay. Uh, so I ended up eating essentially 13 Michelin stars in four days. I went to Atelier Cren, Saison, Croix, Bennu, and Californios. And then I had to go home. It, it was, you know, and, and we actually only focused on San Francisco proper. If, actually, the three Michelin star... Uh, surge has to do with the Bay Area in general, also incorporating Oakland, Sonoma County, uh, Manresa over in Los Gatos, Napa, Napa Valley, of course. So, but I decided to see what was happening in San Francisco itself, um, and it was uh, it was illuminating. The, you know, a weird under 
a, a sort of undercurrent of this so we, is that I actually kind of loathe tasting menus. I've written an, an Esquire about how I I sort of dread them, and I think a lot of food writers do. Right. So this 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 was going to be essentially five tasting menus in four days. Um, <laughs> so, so how did you get um, through I, that? I, 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 <laughs> yeah. Oh, how did I endure it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are worse problems in the world. Um, the um, well, the thing is, I learned something being out there, and I learned something about why these spots have two or three Michelin stars. And um, one of the things I've come to think about tasting menus is they're they're a little they're a little like double or triple albums. If you remember that from I'm I'm old enough to remember that from the seventies. Oh yeah, 80s. me too. You know, you had acts, <laughs> you had acts like The Clash and Prince. And and uh, you know the Rolling Stones and later on Magnetic Fields. I think Magnetic Fields put out a three disc album called Sixty Nine Love Songs. Prince Sign of the Times had a huge impact on my life. And the Clash of Sandinista was three albums, and London Calling was two albums. I've come to think that tasting menus, which can stretch on, you know, for fifteen courses, twenty five courses, in some cases even fifty courses. Um, are a little like those albums. Like, I will go there with Prince. I will go there with the Magnetic Fields. I will go there with the Rolling Stones at their peak. I don't necessarily want to go there with the Gin Blossoms. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> like, hear you. Some bands are meant to be uh, one-hit wonder, you know? Right. Like Cameo, the guys who did Word Up. I loved Word Up. I don't know that I needed, you know, 25 songs of it. So um, so it depends. And and when I was in San Francisco, I found that I was really in the presence of some incredible talents. And, and so these were double, triple, quadruple albums that I was w- willing to listen to all the way through and found, found them to be intoxicating. So what were some of the highlights of your four-day splurge? I would say the three that knocked me out the most were Atelier Crenn, where the chef is Dominique Crenn, who's originally from France. And uh, she expresses the entire menu through a poem. So you sit down and instead of a, a menu that lists the items you're going to eat, you get a poem that somehow spiritually, emotionally corresponds to each course. Uh, I thought that was actually exquisite and sort of beautiful and transporting. Hmm. Um also really, really fond of a restaurant called Saison, where the chef is Joshua Skeins. Uh, and it's a, re- a restaurant where you get a tasting menu, but it's super elemental. It's almost like Josh would probably describe it as a high-end version of a hunting lodge. Like hmm. you'll just get a, a big bowl of lobster soup and you'll get a big steak. They'll say, this is the steak. It's antelope. <laughs> you'll just get this big slab of toast covered in sea urchin. They'll say, this is the sea urchin course. Right. Um, so, so not a lot of not a lot of pretense. No pretense, no show, no plating, as we've come to think of it. Just the ingredients at their best, uh, at the, you know, in terms of the season and sourcing. And I was also completely floored by Benu, uh, which is a restaurant where the chef is Corey Lee. Uh, Corey was born in Korea, uh, and he grew up in the states, and he, he brings primarily. Korean, Chinese, and Japanese influences to the tasting menu, but it's also just an autobiographical story of, you know, how he feels about cooking, and it's expressed with a high, high degree of technical proficiency. Like, everything is perfect. There are dishes that, when you look at them, you actually don't know how they were put together. Like, the, the these are not things you could just cook. In that way, it's the opposite of Cezanne, um, when I got the antelope steak at Saison, I thought, well, I could probably 
figure out how to cook that. Mm. And in fact, the people at Saison gave one of the antelope steaks raw to my friend Phyllis Grant, this local food writer, <laughs> to take home to cook for her kids. So she did actually cook the antelope steak at home. The like version of a thousand-year-old egg that Corey Lee does at Benu, forget it. Right. Like he could give me the cookbook, I would never be able to achieve this. Um, <laughs> the first series of courses were just like the most exquisite ethereal dim sum you've ever had in your life. And there's a joy in that. There's a joy in the elemental expression of a saison, but there's a, obviously a joy in the high wire act of what Corey Lee does at Benu, where you sit there just marveling at the technical genius of it all. Um, I don't know which is my favorite. I, I think you should just go to all of them, and then, <laughs> and then you'll be broke. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's interesting. It, it's interesting in this one city that you can get three completely different kind of genres of a high end meal. Yeah, well, I think part of that's how the the chefs distinguish themselves, right? There's a lot of competition for time and money, and they figure, well, I have to have something unique. Uh, that I'm offering here. It's not just a good tasting menu. It has to be sort of a vision. I mean, this guy, Eric Anderson, they've brought into Qua, which has three Michelin stars. He came in from uh, Minneapolis, actually. He's he's decided that his approach is sort of classic French cooking. Like, if you have Saison on the Vanguard in one way and Bennu and Atelier Crane and Californios in a different way, what he's doing is kind of tapping into that gustatory pleasure of, you know, Escoffier and the classics. So when I went there, you know, he pulled out an old, like, century-old uh, duck press, put some squab in there, and had me squeeze the blood and marrow and juice out of the squab mm. for the special sauce that he puts on a dish, which is something you, you would have probably seen in Paris 100 years ago. Wow. So that's kind of how Eric's distinguishing himself. And it, you know, that was great, too. I mean, there's good stuff being cooked in San Francisco right now, and I, I, I know it's a lot of money, but for for people who want to splurge, the eternal splurge, that's the place to do it right now. Huh. Is is the same thing happening in, in Los Angeles? Los Angeles is completely different. You do have high-end tasting menus like Ennaka and Providence, which are fantastic. I don't know that... That's necessarily an expression of the spirit of the city, though, as much as what you see coming from chefs like Roy Choi, Jessica Coslow, uh, the guys John and Vinny. Um, what all of those chefs specialize in is a kind of elevated casualness, you know, that has its roots in store counters and food trucks and uh, even delis. You know, it's, it's a lot of the best meals you can get right now would be breakfast in Los Angeles, breakfast hmm. and lunch in Los Angeles. Like, I mean, when people ask me where they should eat in Los Angeles, and I get a lot of emails about this, believe me. I wish I could figure out a way to make money off that. <laughs> um, I'm always suggesting, like, you're lucky because in Los Angeles, you can really get a lot of your great meals early in the day. You know, right. you can go for a hike um, and then hit Justa or Republique, or squirrel, or uh, trois familia um, for breakfast, and just have your mind blown. I mean, incredible cooking. So it's very different. I mean, like I've had breakfast burritos in Los Angeles that were every bit as good as a tasting menu in San Francisco. It's just wow. kind of like you know what you're in the mood for. Um, but the culture in Los Angeles is 
gastronomically very different than the culture in San Francisco right now. It's they're they're polar opposites in some ways. And it's also the way people hang out in the restaurants. I mean, you know, when you go to a place like uh, Bennu or Atelier Cren, there's a kind of ceremony, of course. You know, there's this terrific level of hospitality that we're not even talking about, you know, where they're, they're really taking care of you. Um, at Squirrel, you wait in line in Los Angeles. You know, you get in line <laughs> and you wait for your rice bowl like everybody else, you know? Wow. Like, you, you go on Twitter and figure out where Roy Choi's taco truck is and then you hunt it down and you get in line so wow. you know yeah I, I have when i'm in in uh, venice or santa monica i go to justa uh the travis let kind of smoked fish kind of deli place i love to go there oh, ideally straight from the airport when i land but like a lot of times <laughs> i'll try to get breakfast there and the best thing to do is to go is just when they open like seven or whenever they open um there's no lines right uh you can hang out in the patio in the back in the sunshine Wait a few hours, you wait in line. Wow. <laughs> it's total scene. So, You're going to pay one way or another. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, there are casual places in San Francisco, and obviously, there are high-end places in Los Angeles. Um, but uh, in terms of what gets talked about the most, it's, it seems to be the high-end in San Francisco and the, and the sort of casual uh, high-slash-low thing that's going on in Los Angeles. All right. Well, you know, before we sign off, I, I, I'm going to put you on the spot. All right. You're going to die tomorrow. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're going to die tomorrow. <laughs> You're in California. What's your final meal? I would go for my final meal to a restaurant in Pasadena, which is where I grew up, called Pie and Burger. Uh, pie and Burger is a little pie and burger shop, as the name <laughs> suggests. But actually, what's... Uh, the secret that Pasadena residents know is that it's one of the best breakfasts in America. So what I would do for my last day on earth is uh, find a stool in Pie and Burger, have the homemade hash browns, the, the toast, eggs for breakfast, then just sit there and read the paper until lunch. Then I would have <laughs> two cheeseburgers, and then I would have a piece of pie. And if it was in season, I would have the like alalaberry al pie, which is like very, very Californian seasonal thing, hmm. a berry that's harvested up in Cambria. Um, yeah. That sounds I would amazing. Call it a day, I guess. Wow. The spring 2018 edition of Esquire's Big Black Book is on newsstands now. And in it, you can read about Jeff Gordonier's four day adventure through the upper reaches of the San Francisco restaurant scene. Remember, you can get more information on all of the restaurants mentioned here on the California Now podcast homepage. Visit california.com slash podcast. Jeff, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the California Now podcast. If you're looking to get away from it all, truly get away from it all, you might want to consider a trip to the Channel Islands, the Channel Islands National Park, located a few miles off the central California coast. These five islands have been called the Galapagos of North America, in part because of the unique plants and animals that live there, but also because the archipelago feels so remote, so isolated. Author Ken McAlpine knows the Channel Islands well and agreed to join us for a lightning round about this wild destination. Hey, Ken. Hey, Soterius, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan. Thank you so much. Well, for listeners who don't know anything at all about the Channel Islands, how do you describe them? What's the one-sentence description? And, it, you know, it can be a run-on sentence. <laughs> Step back in time. 
I mean, you leave one of the most densely populated coastlines and you take a short boat ride and you go back 10,000 years. Wow. So since this is a lightning round, we want a quick snapshot of each of the five islands in the national park. First impressions, you know, key observations, essential takeaways. So let's start with Anacapa. Anacapa, one square mile, treeless, largely uh, a birding um, nesting ground, breeding ground, uh, lighthouse, so spectacular romance, sound of the lighthouse, uh, but stark, a stark beauty, rugged cliffs, and a great place to see the sunset at Inspiration Point. All right, Santa Cruz. Probably the most visited island, uh, four times the size of Manhattan, so obviously significant lar- significantly larger, largest island off the west coast of, of, of this country. Uh, spectacular. I mean, there's no lack of things to do. Best place to see the island fox, which is sort of the signature animal of the Channel Islands. You will see them nowhere else, about four to five pounds, roughly the size of an overfed house cat, uh, and about as cute as you can imagine. Uh, probably the best day trip, Santa Cruz Island, 45 minutes from the mainland. Uh, what about Santa Rosa Island? Santa Rosa Island, more remote, northwest, uh, the second most, probably the second most remote island of, of the Channel Islands, one of my favorites. Very large, 84 square miles, uh, some of the most beautiful hiking I've spent my whole life in the outdoors, some of the most beautiful hiking I've ever seen in my life. Uh, bit elemental, um, a lot of wind sometimes, not protected from the winds. So you you be prepared for a little bit of the elements, but in, in my mind, that's part of the beauty of nature. And the boat ride out is spectacular. It's a little bit longer. It's about two and a half hours, depending on the conditions. Well worth the trip, though. One of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. I've majored in beaches, and some of the most beautiful beaches I've ever seen in my life are on Santa Rosa Island. San Miguel Island. San Miguel Island, when pressed, because uh, people always want to know what's your favorite this and that, San Miguel is my favorite Channel Island. It's the most remote, so the least visited probably. Uh, it's about eight miles long, not a big place, 14 square miles, but it's it's far off the coast. It takes a bit to get there. Um, probably it's biggest drawing point in my mind is it's home to one of the largest congregations of wildlife on the planet. And we're talking pinnipeds, uh, sea lions, uh, northern fur seals, elephant seals. They come there to mate and breed. And to see a gathering of thousands of these things in one place just sort of puts everything in perspective. I mean, it makes you realize really how small we are. (laughs) And it's a goose pimply moment to see all that life. And finally, Santa Barbara Island. Interesting. Santa Barbara Island is is also one of my favorites, and and mostly for the smug reason that it's it's only about thirty eight miles off the coast of Los Angeles. So, uh, if you choose to camp there, and I would recommend it, it's small. It's one square mile. Again, largely treeless. If you're a birder, it's Nirvana. All sorts of seabirds nest there. But my favorite uh, thing about Santa Barbara Island is you camp there at night. You might be the only camper there. And you sit there on this remote Jurassic Park kind of island and you look off towards the mainland and there's this giant dome of light that's one of the largest cities on the planet. That would be Los Angeles. And all you can hear are sea lions and sea birds and ocean breezes. It's, uh, it's, it's a really lovely disconnect. Wow. Okay. Five islands in less than five minutes. Good job, Ken. 
<laughs> Thank you very much. It's hard <laughs> to condense all that beauty. <laughs> Ken McAlpine is the author of 10 books, including Islands Apart, A Year on the Edge of Civilization, which chronicles the time he spent exploring the Channel Islands. You can order his books on his website, kenmcalpine.com, and on Amazon. And as always, you can find links to everything we discussed today at visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. This is California Now, and I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. There are few things in this world I enjoy more than an over-the-top, ultra-luxury hotel experience. The amazing food, the high-thread-count sheets, all the pampering. What's not to like? Well, my next guest certainly qualifies as an expert in this rarefied world. Amanda Frazier is Senior Vice President Ratings for Forbes Travel Guide, the global authority on luxury travel. Amanda, welcome to the California Now podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically, Forbes' travel guide is for luxury hotels, kind of like what the Michelin guide is for restaurants. You you deploy incognito evaluators, the, the whole nine yards, right? That's exactly what we do, yes, on a global basis. And so can you talk a little bit about like how they evaluate things and uh, just the criteria, things like that? Certainly. So our evaluators are deployed globally, and we inspect on an incognito basis all year round. And when we say incognito, we really mean... We do not reveal the identity of the inspector at any point during the stay, either before they arrive, during the stay, uh, and we don't identify ourselves on departure either. So uh, the idea is that the property doesn't know that we're coming. Uh, We know there's a little bit of a cat and mouse game, and many of them do try to establish who the evaluator (laughs) is, uh, but they go through extensive training to make sure that they're undercover tips and tricks are all uh, activated while they're on property. So by the time the report ends up in my hands, um, it is a ethical and well-executed report. And actually, when the inspector checks out, they're not the ones that actually even decide who gets uh, the star rating. It's all down to the property. uh, And the inspector finds out at exactly the same time as the property as to what award they have earned. So so these evaluators are basically like professional hotel guests, right? I mean, that sounds like kind of a fun job. You know, it is a fun job. When we put out an advert to say we're looking for an evaluator, we get thousands upon thousands of applications. Um, But really what we're looking for is not only, of course, people that love to travel and have a passion particularly for luxury travel, but what's really important is they have certain criteria that are really important to us uh, in terms of a skill set that we look for. Um, So being able to travel permanently is a skill set in and of itself. Hmm. Um, You know, it requires a lot of dedication. But of course, we look for people with uh, amazing attention to detail, very good memory, extremely well organized and self-sufficient. And of course, a really wonderful set of writing skills as well. We have a particular style that we like our reports to be written in. um, And that's really important for us as well. There's a lot of editorial work that's involved with uh, with the process too. And a very understanding family. I think that's a really important requirement. <laughs> I would imagine. You don't get to yeah. see them much. <laughs> <laughs> if you're on the road a lot, you'd have to have an understanding family. Um, as, as far as how you evaluate the properties, is there like a score sheet or something along those lines? How do you, how exactly do you go about it? What are the criteria? Recommended is, of course, our entry level. It's um, pretty incredible to achieve a recommended award. Um, It means that you've, A, been identified as one of the best in the best in your area and have proven that either through an incredible facility or something about your property that is important for consumers to know why they should come to your region. 
Um, so it could be the food program. It could be the design. Um, you know, once you get up to the four-star level, we often talk about uh, these hotels and the media talks about these hotels and restaurants as being our gold medalists. These are um, some champions within our collection that have really gone above and beyond to not only deliver a solid luxury experience, but go that extra mile. Uh, and you are almost guaranteed to have, you know, an amazing experience each and every time. You know, once you get to the five-star level, of course, this is what we refer to as uh, our Michael Phelps, our multi-gold medalist. We <laughs> often get asked the question as well, well, what's the difference between a four and a five? And at right. the end of the day, what it comes down to is uh, primarily consistency. Um, it's very hard to deliver at the recommended and four-star level in and of itself, but to deliver at the five-star level takes a special level of commitment, not just from the individual employees, you know, assisting the guests, but the ownership and the leadership at the hotel too, everything has to be aligned and that has to happen every single time, every single day. And that's very, very difficult. And only those hotels achieving at 90% and higher, uh, you know, receive that five-star award. I was on your site uh, earlier and saw that there are 28 five-star hotels in California and 41 four-star properties. It seems like California has more than its fair share of, of top-tier properties. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, obviously, uh, California spans a vast region, but there's so much diversity in California, uh, and you have so much choice. And it's you know it's a it's almost a, a confusing uh, part for us to come to because there is just so much. And how do we, you know, siphon out what is the best of the best? So even though we try to be very diligent in how many hotels we go to in each city to not show obviously any favoritism. Uh, California just continues to deliver um, prop, you know, property after property, year after year with new properties opening all the time. And you have such a diverse range of guest experiences out there at the luxury level. Um, it's, it's a state that I think we're going to continue to see uh, with high numbers. Does a hotel have to be massive to, to qualify for four or five star status? Are, are there boutique hotels on the list as well? Absolutely. Yes. No, you do not have to be a mega resort. Um, you know, there's a beautiful property in Northern California called Chateau de Soro, um, which has been one of our longstanding five-star properties. Um, and it's tiny. It's a Relais and Chateau property. Um, but then, of course, you have mega resorts as well. It's not the We don't dictate a, a size or um, uh, specifics when it comes to facility. It's really down to the quality of the facility that's offered, whether it's large or small. Um, and at the end of the day, the service, we're heavily weighted on service in our algorithm that helps determine the final award. So we're 75% service, 25% facility. Hmm. Uh, you know, I noticed that there are also three triple five-star properties in the state. That sounds pretty impressive. What does that actually mean, three, triple five stars? Well, there's only 13 in the world, so it's impressive in and of itself. But to be a triple five means that you have a hotel, a restaurant, and a spa, which each qualify for an independent award that have been identified, A, as a hotel, restaurant, or spa that we want to put on the schedule, and B, as a hotel, restaurant, or spa that we inspected and achieved a rating. And not only achieved a rating, but achieved five star for each, which is a, a pretty incredible and rare achievement. And you do have three in California. Uh, one as recently as this past February, which was the Meadowood, which was awarded uh, its uh, hotel five star award, making it a new triple five. So let's talk about each of those uh, triple five star properties. That first one you just mentioned, Meadowood, Napa Valley, uh, just got mm. it this year. How did they how did they actually you know do it? 
You know, this is a hotel um, that I think is the epitome of what I was talking about when I said there's this commitment from ownership and leadership and staff. And that is a team that has just worked so incredibly hard. And we've seen their journey and watched their journey and seen their development over the years and watched their scores improve and improve and improve. And, you know, it, it takes a special commitment, as what we talked about, to get to the five-star level. And here is a team that all stuck together and were on the same path and journey and had just this incredible commitment to what they wanted to do, not just to earn an award, but to deliver the pinnacle of luxury experiences for their guests. And this is what they were able to do through that dedication. And that's really what it comes down to. They were completely committed to it. Can you talk a little bit about some of the specifics that people would experience there that kind of led to you giving them the five star, triple five stars? You know, I did mention as well that we're 70% service. And while Meadowood is an incredible facility and a beautiful location in the Napa Valley is just gorgeous. Um, their level of graciousness and just forward thinking. And this is a hotel that you can go to where many people think about five-star service and that people are all over you and service can be stuffy and aloof. And we actually look for exactly the opposite. We look for service that is forward thinking and anticipatory, um, but that does so in a way that doesn't make you feel watched over and hovered over. And that can be very uncomfortable. Uh, And the staff at Meadowood um, do a really wonderful job of that. And they're very gracious, uh, very natural, um, and their personalities come through as well. You know you're in the Napa Valley when you visit Meadowood, yet you have this incredibly elegant experience. That sounds amazing, right in the heart of Napa Valley. And speaking of location, uh, Montage Laguna Beach is another triple five-star winner located right on the Pacific uh, coast in Orange County. Um, Is location something that affects the ratings? We don't specifically dictate that you have to be in a certain location to achieve a certain award. You can really be essentially anywhere, but it certainly doesn't help. Um, Montage Uh, Laguna Beach is one of those properties that has this amazing sense of place, even down to the smells of their amenities and the smells of the lobby and the flowers. You just know that you're in Orange County in in Southern California. Um, It's a property that's actually especially dear to us because they are home to our very first uh, five-star spa. So when we started evaluating spas and created those standards back in 2005, um, they were our very first winner and have held that accolade for their spa all these years consecutively. So it's a pretty special place. So what does a spa have to do to get a a five-star rating? Well, essentially, it's the same as the hotel in terms of that it's a 75%, 25% service to facility ratio. So initially, to get the attention of Forbes Travel Guide, you have to build, obviously, a fabulous facility. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the service execution. Um, and of course, the staff of the spa at the Montage do a wonderful job. Um, I think when you think about going to a spa, and especially a luxury spa at the four and five star level, it can be quite an intimidating experience for a guest. There can be a lot of anxiety. But as with um, all of our five-star spas, this is a spa that when you get there, you feel instantly relaxed. You get that California casual vibe. They're overlooking the ocean. You instantly feel relaxed. And then the staff just put that extra magical touch on top by making you feel welcome and relaxed. And you suddenly forget that you're in this incredibly, you know, um, five-star place. You don't think about the service levels. It just happens all uh, very naturally for them. Sounds lovely. Uh, The third triple five-star 
in the Golden State is the the Fairmont Grand Del Mar. What can you tell us about that resort? Mm. You know, that, that, that resort, you wouldn't even know when you go in that you're in San Diego. That's a Mediterranean-style <laughs> resort that was purpose-built. Um, I remember being at the property when it was still hard hat and it wasn't even finished. Uh, and the architecture that just went into that and the planning was incredible. Um, and then you layer on top of that the intensive and, and very dedicated hiring program they went through to bring these amazing team, this amazing team on site to really match the elegance of the property to the elegance of the service that you're going to receive. And that's really what we're all about at Forbes Travel Guide. So whilst the facility is important, what's equally or in fact more important is that the staff that serve you match the elegance of their surroundings, um, but without losing that sense of place. So you know you're in California, of course, because there's that elegant laid back casual vibe but they still deliver service at a level that's very um, gracious and very eloquent um, and very anticipatory. I have to say that during the the rare occasions when I stay at one of these ultra luxe hotels I'm always struck by the quality of the concierges. Uh, the best of them are, are true miracle workers and they, they're always so pleasant to deal with. Do, do your evaluators put the concierges to the test? We do. In fact, uh, we have a, a little internal giggle because this is uh, so important to us, actually. It's the only section that we test twice. So when we evaluate a hotel, we will evaluate the concierge twice. And it can be a combination of telephone call or visiting the desk in person. Um, and it's an extremely important role. Um, it's a huge investment for a hotel to have a dedicated concierge. And it's not a Forbes Travel Guide requirement that you have a dedicated concierge that only does that role, um, but it is a requirement that you have staff that can be extremely knowledgeable and make the guest feel that they made a good decision choosing that hotel and using that service and that they got more than they could get just by, I don't know, Googling a restaurant that everyone can do nowadays on their handheld devices. Why would you want to do that if you have this um, incredible team of concierges on staff that have inside information and can provide you with the secret tips that everyone loves to have um, when you go and stay in a hotel uh, like the Grand Del Mar or Montage or Meadowood? Well, you heard it here. Don't be shy, people. Use the concierges. They're there to help you. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. You are welcome. Thank you for having me. Amanda Fraser is the Senior Vice President Ratings for Forbes Travel Guide. You can read their ratings of the world's top luxury hotels at ForbesTravelGuide.com. And as always, you can find links and more information about all the places we discussed today at VisitCalifornia.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to California Now. This podcast is produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe. And if you're looking for additional insights on the California food scene, I suggest you check out something we call the California Questionnaire. Alice Waters, Tyler Florence, David Kinch, and Aisha Curry are just a few of the high-profile chefs who have shared personal insights on their food empires, not to mention some of their favorite Golden State activities. You can find dozens of California questionnaires at visitcalifornia.com.